0: It's Savvy Savs, and I have a special guest with me today. Her name is Erica Eiderhoven. She's a Democratic Socialist, and she's a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives for the 27th Middlesex District. Hi, Erica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming. So Erica, before we get started, can you tell everyone a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, In terms of just like, you know, what brought me to running for office and being where I am now, that kind of background. Um, Yeah, I think, so um, I kind of had a, I guess a meandering path to to politics. It was not something I thought I was gonna get into, you know, early on in life. Um, But I, prior to this, worked as an antitrust economist um, so I did a lot of work, um, analyzing data on, you know, when corporations break the rules of the market. Um, and that was a pretty radicalizing experience in itself because the reality is corporations are doing a lot more than breaking rules in the market. And, you know, if we don't change the rules, right, nothing is, is going to change. And so that's really kind of what brought me towards, um, politics initially. Um, and I worked on the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, um, took a sabbatical as an organizer, and that was really kind of a, a I guess, radicalizing experience for me, both in terms of, I think that campaign, you know, broke the spell of neoliberalism, right? For our whole country and what is possible, right? And what is the role of, of government and what it means to have all of our um, needs met. Um, but also it was radicalizing as an individual for me because it really shifted how I positioned myself in the world. Um, you know, when we won New Hampshire, the New Hampshire primary by the largest margin in over 50 years, right? It became really clear to me that not only um, do we want these things to change, but it's my responsibility to make them happen, right? As an organizer and through organizing and politics, rather than I think before that, my orientation was like, you know, I I was taught to, you know, get a good job. You know, my mom always wanted me to have a white collar job in an office building, try to do your best, right? And like, really, um, you know, provide for your family, which is not, not to say that's not a noble thing to do, but um, you know, my, my perspective on politics and sort of the world we live in and around climate crisis, right, how, you know, having Medicare for all, um, all of these issues became not just issues that like happened to me, but that I have a responsibility to change them. Um, and so I think since then I've, um, you know, essentially really couldn't go back to to business as usual. So I got involved in state level advocacy um, and, you know, co-founded Act on Mass. And then, you know, here I am as I'm a state representative. So that's a little bit about just my journey here in uh, in politics.
0: Yeah. So my husband and I like we were really rooting for you. Like when you were running (laughs) We saw your debates and um, followed your campaign. So I get to tell you in person. Congrats. Oh, thank you. Um, and then also like, as someone who lives in Somerville, so we, mm-hmm. my husband and I actually just recently left Somerville because mm-hmm. like, we bought, we bought a house, but, um, we were very familiar with how Somerville has changed like mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. Yes. Um, one of the things that you had on your platform was public education.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you wanted to guarantee universal pre-K, yes. can you tell everybody like, why is this significant?
1: I mean, I think um, education overall is just this foundational building block of our democracy. Our democracy hinges on it. Um, and interesting enough, Massachusetts is actually the world's home to public education. We were the first place in the world to have, um, you know, there were a lot of problems with it, not to say, right, it was only for white people and only, you know, all these issues, like, of course, right, like that, but like in the 1800s, we were the first to, make public education a real thing. Um, and um, to me, you know, universal pre-K as well as debt-free higher ed and, you know, equitably funding our public schools, um, all three of those in terms of ensuring that we are putting where our, you know, our what I say is like our budgets is where our values are, right? And I believe our values should be where democracy is and in particular with public education, there has been a ongoing Intentional and um, concerted assault against public education over the past decades, in terms of trying to disinvest in it, um, trying to come up with these commodified versions of how we can do, you know, public education on the cheap in a way, um, as well as right trying to. Um, turn the field of education right as a, particularly for educators into something that is a revolving door, rather than something that we invest in and it makes it a, a really clear you know on. Um, um, part of our Community, and it is right, it is one of our last strongholds of of the public sector, uh, I mean there's others, but this is one of the last you know strong um, big ones, and so I think that that's something that. um. I believe we need to be expanding public education. And that's why for me, pre-K, universal pre-K is so important. And then I think the other side of that coin, right? Is in terms of who who needs this most, right? when you look and you mentioned Somerville, right? We had the highest increase in housing prices than anywhere else in the state. So we are rapidly gentrifying the displacement crisis is real as as well as the affordable housing crisis. And when you look at the average, um, you know, any person who lives in Somerville, their expenses, right? First there's housing. And then if you have kids, it's childcare and education, right? Um, and so that's really something that is driving families out of Somerville is that they just cannot afford that, and you know, cost of of preschool um, is a huge. I mean, it's the fact that we make it something that isn't publicly available, right? Makes it a problem of equity and who has who has access to to pre K and on. I think it's really clear when you look at any other you know country, right? Like you know, especially look at Europe, right? I mean, there is. Mm-hmm. universal pre-k is a given right starts at age three um and that's you know we know the all the you know studies around how beneficial that is but i think that you know the real thing is around right how do we set up an equitable public education system and that if we say oh education starts at kindergarten it doesn't right We we all know that it starts much earlier and so we need to make sure that we're actually funding that and expanding the Expanding public education for all and equitable public education, so that everyone has the same, um, you know, access to a high quality education.
0: Exactly. Um, I know you've talked about public transportation, mm-hmm. and for those who don't live in the Boston area, public transportation is like a big issue here. Um, but I know you wanted to expand the MBTA yeah. um, and and also try to make this free as well. For mm-hmm. people who like don't live in the Boston area, can you explain to people why is this so important?
1: Yeah, I mean I think um you know, transit is a a human right. And, you know, transit is a massive, we call equalizer, right. And I will say, you know, when I talk about equitable school funding, right, what means is that there is disinvestment in some communities, which is very clear, we have been underfunding, right, BIPOC communities, low income communities and public education, and the same exact argument can be made for public transport, particularly in the greater Boston area, when you look at the MBTA lines, right, like, where have we avoided, right, where have we not, where do we only serve bus lines, right, versus, versus the um you know subway Um, so to me right like making sure that we can provide public transportation for all right for all workers for all working people is incredibly important because that is a piece of um a critical part of our infrastructure right and how people are able to get by in their lives and all that stuff so i think that that is you know and i think there was a really i mean um i I can't pull up the number right now but there is a study around right the disparity by race and, and class in terms of how much time you spend on public you know public transit for, for someone, you know, based on the those factors. And it's it's abominable, we should not, you know, this should be something that's, again, equitable and accessible to all. Um, and so to me, um, that's that's a really key part of what we need to have in the greater Boston area. And I'll add another aspect of it too, is that it's a big climate crisis issue because our biggest carbon, largest carbon emission comes from transportation um, in the greater Boston area. so ensuring that everyone has right um, access to transportation, which I think is just a basic right, but in also if we wanna be serious about environmental justice and the climate crisis, right, and curbing our carbon emissions, we need to look at transportation, absolutely need to be fixing that. So I think that's something that um, is, is so important, uh, particularly in the greater Boston area and in particularly also as people get, um, pushed out right of the city which shouldn't happen to begin with, but as it's happening right we need to be expanding those services, because one thing that people overlook with the affordable housing or displacement crisis is they're like, we'll just find somewhere else to live. I mean do you understand when someone has like you know relied on the systems that we have today and, and someone's a you know a senior. Um, who is, you know, has less uh, options for mobility and all these, you know, and you're saying just find a different place, you know, outside of where there's public transit. I mean, that completely upends people's daily lives. Um, And so it's so important that one, we don't allow the displacement crisis to move forward, but also we provide those opportunities for people because mobility is a a fundamental human right for everyone to to be able to access. And so um, that's why it's such a clear issue in the greater Boston area. And I'll just add one more thing too, because particularly around, like, Vaccine equity, right, is one thing that's come up, and when we had, right, for a long period of time. I mean, things keep fluctuating, and it's it's uh, persistently frustrating. But you know, at first it was like, hey, everyone in Somerville, just go to Gillette Stadium. You know, if you win the lottery, that is. You know, if you win the lottery on the website, and it was like, okay, so you want the most vulnerable, right, senior um, residents to take multiple lines of public transportation to get to Gillette, you know, or to get to Fenway. Um, you know, that just shows you, right, like if we had invested in public transportation, we'd be in a very different place, but also, right, we need to think about transportation equity in just that problem alone. And I think I just, I pick out the vaccine as like, you know, one trip that people need to make to get there, right, but that is the case with like anything in terms of our daily needs and our daily lives, right? Whether it's food, whether it's, you know, getting to work, whether it's to get to your doctor's appointment, right? These are all things that transportation hinges on. Um, And that's why transportation equity is such a a key, key issue for us.
0: No, agreed, um, I know uh, a couple years ago, Marty Walsh um, said vote with your feet because they were trying to make it so that the T, for those who don't live in Boston, like the T is our public transportation system, our subway system, to make sure that they would stay open later because we we are not a 24 hour public transportation, uh, public transportation system like you have mm-hmm. in New York, we don't have that here. And so I've often wondered, like how do people who work third shift, Right. They don't have a car. How are they getting back and forth to work? I've always wondered that. Yeah. I mean,
1: it really limits people's options. Right. I mean, I'll just share like a very small anecdote from my um, university. Um, They were charging the food service workers there like the same price for parking as like the rest of, you know, the students and faculty, which is by the way, like some, I mean, there's like a monthly pass. I don't, again, I don't know the cost, but it was something, I mean, they charged me like $20 to park there a day. Right. So it's like, you know i mean that's where like the equity piece becomes so important because then it's like so you've only given them the option to drive and then this driving option is incredibly regressive right is that it causes you know invokes even more costs on on working people so it's it's just another piece of um the inequities of the system right and then it's like assuming you have a car right and then what if your car breaks down right and so all these issues they all kind of um are, are intertwined with this public transit issue and i think i think you're totally right i mean we need to be ensuring that you know, people have access for when they need it. And so, and I've always thought that the like T closing at 1230 was, was quite early, you know, I should I like, you know I mean, I, I've i also lived in, in parts of the world where like it's open to like two or 3 a.m. right to your point, right on the third shifts, you know it's like, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, things that we wanna, you know, use our imagination to see what kind of transportation is, is truly equitable and what, how can we build a T that really fulfills all
0: those needs. Exactly. Now I know you talked about defunding the police, yeah. um, especially in incidents with mental health, you know, mm-hmm. crisis. We've seen these situations just go terribly wrong and very badly when police officers show up to deal with mental health situations. Um, what do you propose would be a better option? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that question. And I, I take it from a, an abolitionist lens of, you know, what does it take for us to have true public safety and true public health, right? If we centered on safety and health, right? Rather than a lens of criminalization, right? Which I think um, is, is sort of the you know the, the the defense line as to like, well, we need to have police. You need to have someone with a gun. Um, what if your, you know, your your body's in danger? And the reality is, you know, when we talk about true public safety. Um, the question is, are we addressing all these underlying reasons why we had to call public you know, safety or public you know, in the first place, right? And that usually who shows up is the police, right? Um, and my view is that like, all right, let's say you have a case of a mental health crisis or domestic violence or um, or even theft, right? I mean, that's not a mental health crisis. So, you know, what is underlying what, what happened, right? And are we actually addressing those underlying issues? And so that brings to question, right? If we're gonna, prop, you know, if we wanna respond to those underlying issues rather than kind of using a blunt tool of criminalization, um, then we're asking ourselves, well, then what were the needs of why people were brought in to begin with, right? Um, and a lot of those needs are, well, we need more mental health counselors, we need more public, you know, public health in general, right? Like we need, I mean, I'll just say as a, someone who worked a, as an EMT, right? We were bringing people to the emergency room who shouldn't have been going to, I mean, the emergency room was the only thing I could bring them to, but really what they needed was ongoing counseling or ongoing health, uh, health care, right and support. Um, and so those are things that we are not we are disinvesting in, while we're spending so much money on policing and, and the prison industrial complex, right. And so those are things that, you know, just as examples, how to get to those underlying issues, I would even take that argument even further, right, when you have incidents of, of, you know, theft, for example, or, um, you know, some kind of, you know, that, that sort of situation, I mean, the question is, like, now, What kind of equitable or you know, what kind of inequality in our society do we have that leads to people to have to be acting on that right and like why was there a theft to begin with right those are the questions we need to be asking rather than saying, assuming presuming immediately Oh, some people are good and some people are bad and really the whole like underlying notion of like the institution of policing and in prisons right is saying, there are good people and there are bad people and we need to punish the bad people. And, you know, an abolitionist lens says, look, we have underlying problems, right? That people are facing with. How do we solve those problems? How do we put our resources towards, right? Actual harm reduction, right? Actual healing, right? Rather than a response that is, I would say actually perpetuates the problem even further, right? It does not actually provide solutions for any of those kind of three cases that I put forward, right? It doesn't solve the problem of poverty or needing needs met right or making sure like basic needs are met it doesn't solve the problem of meeting um you know counseling or healing around mental health crises or really any crisis right I mean in terms of support and I bring that up with you know other cases so I, I think that's the key of to me about what defund the police means is that we're actually allocating our resources to solving those problems rather than looking at crime and, you know, busting crime as, as, you know, the, the you know, my, my more conservative counterparts will, will say, right, is that we actually need to be providing those resources to solve those problems rather than saying this is the only solution forward, which I don't think has ever been the case. And that's led us to what an increased, you know, militarization of policing, prisons, and as well as, you know, domestic, I'm sorry, um you know, um spending abroad, right. And so I think that's something that we, we need to re formulate right how we how we approach these problems and that's why for me I'm you know I was very um, vocal about being for defunding the police because it's really about addressing human needs um, and how do we actually allocate those resources in society and I would argue public education is another one as well right related to that you know rather than having you know police in our schools is that really solving an underlying problem or do we need counseling support do we need more you know social workers do we need more um, you know paraprofessionals and, and people who support our students right rather than criminalizing them I mean I think that's the student of prison pipeline is like a late stage ver- I am mean, not late stage later stage version of what we've kind of gone down this path of like criminalizing every problem right when they're actually health issues or or you know issues that we need to have support
0: for agreed Now, I know you're for Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. So I feel that this is even more important now during a time when we are in the middle of a pandemic. So many people don't have health insurance and didn't have health insurance before COVID happened. What's your response to people? like When people come back and say, they're going to take our health care away, how how Mm -hmm. do you respond to that in reference to Medicare for all?
1: Yeah, um, yeah, the taking of health care away. I mean, I think the reality is that we're not here to take health care away, right? We're here to ensure that everyone has the same, it has access to health care, right? At the very, very, very least. Um, And, you know, I think there's kind of this argument that came up during the presidential campaign. I'm trying to remember, it was like, you know, people were saying, well, you know, our union fought so hard for our health care plans and now you're trying to take those away from us, right? Um, And, you know, my view on that is like, well, then everyone should be represented by a union, right? We have very low union membership, right? Like, why wouldn't you want everyone to have the things that you have, right? And then why are we looking at this from a scarcity mindset? Why can't we have your health plan, but for everyone? Why is it something that only we get to have, right? And not other people, right? And so I think that's, that's my response is that, like, I want everyone to have that, you know, the, the health plan that unions fought for. And in fact, right, if we had um, much higher unionization, unlike what's happened over the past 30 years, we'd be in a very different place, more people would. But the thing with universal health care is that we believe everybody deserves it, regardless of what situation or position you're in. Um, and I think the other piece I'll say too, in response to like, you know, you're trying to take our health care away. Um, we, this is, if there's anything that we, if you want to take sort of like a spending lens to, right, comparatively to other countries, we, as United States spend more per health care than almost any other developed country in the world and have the worst results for it, right? In terms of life expectancy, I mean, any health indicators, and particularly, I think one thing that's important to look at is that this is, again, with all issues, it's a racial justice issue. And you look at the disparity by race, just in the Boston area, I mean, the the gap between the you know the lowest and highest life expectancy, which is, by the way, within like one or two miles apart
0: mm-hmm. is over
1: 15 years. I mean, that's right, but that's the outcome of a broken healthcare system and an inequitable one. And so, um, you know, I urge that like one, not only is universal healthcare the right thing to do, you know, taking insurance companies and the whole kind of for-profit healthcare system out of the equation means we're not going to be actually spending all this money, right? Because it's like, why are we spending all of this when you look at every other Country that has some form of universal health care. I mean, we can debate on the margins, but right, every, some form of universal health care. Um, you know, what are we doing wrong is the real question. And then, you know, taking ourselves out of the scarcity mindset, imagine if we put that same amount of money that we spend today, right, to a system that works, we would have the best health care in the world for everyone. I mean, that's what that's what the the numbers are are showing to me, right? And so that's I think the world we want to work towards and how do we make it so everyone has the same, you know, privileges that that we may have um, based on you know our our life or our experiences. So
0: yeah. Agreed. All right, Erica, I have one more question for you. Yeah. What advice would you give someone who is thinking about running for office? Mm,
1: that's a good question. Um, Here's what I'll say. Um, For running for office, it's a job that anyone can do. It's not a question of can, it's a question of should. Um, And I say that because um, when you ask me, you know, for anyone running for office, overwhelmingly, right, women, BIPOC folks, queer folks get hung up on the can I run. The question is not can you do the job? Anyone can do this job. And in fact, anyone does (laughs) as things stand today, right? But the question is should. And when you ask the question of should, right, that's something that says, you know, I don't believe in waiting for one's turn, right? There's this sort of like culture around that in in Massachusetts, especially of like, you know, like wait till, you know, a seat opens up and all that. The question is the right is the person who's representing you today the person who should be representing you? And are you the person who could be representing people better, right? And so I think that to me is like kind of my best advice I can give people because I see over and over again, people get caught up on the question of can I represent versus should I represent? Um, And the should I is the much more, um, the deeper question, right? Uh, And also it it hinges more on values rather than like what are societally, Defined, you know, cans, right? Do I have a law degree? Do I have, did I run for office before? Did I do all the things to prepare me for this moment? And the reality is, no one's ever prepared when they run for office. That's the kind of like secret that no one tells. Um, and I think that um, if people ask more questions around should I run for office rather than can I? Right, we eliminate all those kind of internal, right, imposter syndrome type stuff that comes up that I know, you know, again, our, our paler, maler and staler counterparts never seem to, to trip over. Um, and then that, you know, the should I is the question around what kind of world we believe in and that we all have a responsibility to build the world we wanna see. Um, and so that's the kind of my best advice is to encourage people to think about the should rather than the can I, because um, I don't, I'm tired of seeing people that absolutely should be holding public office not even taking the first step because they get caught up on that first question rather than the second one.
0: Well said. All right, everyone. I'll be sure to put the link to Erica's website in the description below. Erica, thanks so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.